All right, so I just have uh, one more introduction I'd like to, to make to you on the Student Ministry Emphasis Sunday, and I brought a picture of someone I'd like to introduce you to, so. Maybe. The anticipation. There it is. That's Baby Garner. Yeah! <laughs> Due May the 7th, all right, May the 7th. So this is Jamie and I's very first child, right? It took us nine years to build up the courage. I mean, we work in student ministry, okay? So uh, it took us nine years, but we're there. We're super excited. Uh, so anyways, just wanted to introduce Baby Garner uh, to you guys. I'll say that. We're really happy about that. Uh, to begin with today, I want to go back to not nine years in marriage, but kind of nine weeks into marriage and start off by talking about our first big fight. Anybody remember that when you get married? And then you kind of move in together, and you're like, oh, this is what it is, okay? And, and I remember I was a brand-new student pastor in Austin, Texas. Actually, Pflugerville starts with a P, Pflugerville. And so I was working there. It's a new job, and so I'm just pouring everything I have in this job. I'm super excited. I'd just been married a couple weeks earlier. And so the way I kind of worked was I would just go to the office, and I would just, you know, plug away, chug away. And, and then when I get done, when I got to a good stopping point, I would come home. And so I'm coming home at different times, some days 5, 6, 7 o'clock. And then one day I get a text from Jamie while I'm at the office, and, you know, I'm really in my rhythm. I'm just getting after it. And she says, hey, what are you doing? And I don't know if you're the same way as me, but when someone kind of interrupts me when I'm in a rhythm, I just kind of get a little irritated. I'm just like, even though it's my brand new wife, I was just like working, you know. And she's like, okay, honey, well, just want to see when you think you might get home. And I'm like, I don't know. She goes, well, could you give me a time? I'm like, when I'm done working, when I get to a good stopping point, you know. It's like, that ends the conversation. I know, it was really sweet. And then an hour later, I get another text. Hey, babe, just want to check in, see if you're coming home. And I'm like, not yet, not done working. She's like, okay. And then about another hour later, right, it's probably about 7, 7.30 now, I'm actually coming into the apartment, I'm walking up the stairs, and I get another text from Jamie. Hey, sweetheart, just want to see if you're heading home yet. And it's just something just erupted inside of me, right? I, was just, I couldn't take it anymore. So I walk in the apartment, and I'm just like, what the heck? You know, why do you feel the need to text me all day long and say, hey, when are you coming home, and what are you doing? And, what are you? and so I'm just kind of going off. I'm a little fired up. It kind of bothered me. And so I started asking these questions like, why are you checking in on me? Why are you so incessant about knowing where I am and when I'm coming home? And then I answered for her, which, gentlemen, please never answer for your wife, all right? But I did it. I was just learning, okay? I was a couple weeks into this thing. And so I answered for her, and I said, you don't trust me. Mm-hmm. Yep, I've heard about this. I know what it is. You don't trust me. And that got me going even more. And so then I'll never forget what I said next, and Jamie probably never will either. I said, woman... And that's not mean. That's not mean because that's what she is. She's a woman. No, I'm just kidding. I'm justifying my sin. That was definitely, definitely mean. But I said it. I said, woman, I don't have to check in with you. You're not my mama. I said, I'll come home when I want to come home because I'm a grown man. Right? These are the literal words that came out of my mouth. And as soon as I got through saying, man, Jamie slapped me. No, I'm just kidding. She didn't, she didn't slap me. She didn't slap me. She should have. She should have. She should have slapped me, but she didn't. Hey, here's what Jamie did. I'll never forget this either. She was, she was calm. She was cool. She was collected. And she looked me dead in the eyes, and she was a little hurt. She said, did it ever occur to you that I'm not checking in on you because I don't trust you, but rather I love you. I care about you. I want to know that you're safe. 
and I wanted to have dinner hot and ready for when you got home. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, no, it, it never, never occurred to me. I mean, I never thought that once, you know. And so I was just such a, I didn't win husband of the year that year. Um, but I thought that's so interesting, right? How two people, it's the same text message, the same conversation, and yet we can interpret it so differently. Right? Isn't this the result of a lot of the conflict in our marriages, in our families, at our jobs, in church, even in the world? Is that people see the same thing, they're looking at the same thing, but they're not seeing it the same way. There's different interpretations about reality. I mean, let's just go back to the sonogram for a second and put that up there. What is that? Is it a baby? Is it an embryo? Is it a fetus? Is it a human? We're all looking at the same thing. We're seeing it differently. When does that life begin? The moment of conception? Does it begin when it has its first heartbeat? When the brain starts firing? When it can live on its own outside the womb? Not until it's born? Does that have rights? Does my wife's rights trump that's rights? Does the government, are they allowed to mandate what my wife can or cannot do in regards to that rights? We're all looking at the same thing, but we're seeing it in very, very different ways. Why is this? It's because you and I, we all have different worldviews. And that's what I want to talk about today, is our worldview. And so, what I'd say is this, Norm Geisler, William Watkins, they put out a definition. What is a worldview? In their book, Worlds Apart, a handbook on worldviews, here's what they say. A worldview is a way of viewing and interpreting all of reality. It's an interpretive framework through which or by which one makes sense of the data of life in the world. The way you view a text from your spouse, the way you view the issue of abortion, the way you process and think about my sermon, all the ways you process life's data and interpret reality, that is your worldview. And so maybe this will help. A good analogy, a good illustration is a worldview is like a pair of glasses that you put on. And this is the way you see everything. This is the way you see all of life and all of reality. It comes through and it's filtered. So what you see depends on the type of glasses you have on, the prescription of your glasses, whether they're distorted, whether they're broken, they're cracked, they're fogged up, they're dirty, the color, whether they're tinted. That is a worldview. It's a lens through which we process and see all of reality. Now, you've all probably tried on a pair of glasses before. You know, maybe you're at the store and you start grabbing them off and putting them on. And I remember being at Walmart one day and I grabbed one off. And I was like, this would be cool. And you put them on. And I didn't know my eyes could hurt, but they hurt. You know, you throw those glasses on. It's like, Ugh! you know, and you just strained your eyes and you can't see anything. All of reality, all of life was distorted when I put those on. But then I also remember one time I was hanging out at a friend's house. Jamie and I were playing games in the Urbina's living room. And their living room is connected to their dining room, which is connected to their kitchen. And so you can kind of see all the way through their house. And in their kitchen is an oven, and it's got the, the digital clock right on the front. Well, we would sit in the living room, and we would play games all night long. And I would turn, I'd look in the kitchen, and all I could see was a green glow. I never could read the numbers on the clock. And Sarah, this was the, the couple's the wife, she had a pair of glasses. She takes them off and she sits them down. And so I'm just being goofy. So I pick them up and I throw them on. I'm like, how would I look in these? And I turn and I look and I'm like, 
923. I can see the clock. I can see the numbers. And so I just start standing up. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, I was just taking it all in, never forward. And so I'm asking him, like, this is what you guys see all the time? You see this, right? And then I looked at Jamie, and I'm like, whoa, you know, this is how I was really excited. And so it was just wonderful to have that. It's like I went from just standard cable to HD 1080p in an instant. And that's what a worldview is, right? When you have the right lens, when you have the right prescription, when you have the right filter, it brings focus, it brings clarity, it brings precision to all of life, to all of reality. So maybe that's a helpful way of looking at worldview. And here's the interesting thing about worldview is that everybody has one. Everybody has one. It's impossible not to, right? It's impossible to go through life and not interpret data or not have an assumption about what is going on. You have to have a worldview. And when you boil it down, everybody's trying to make sense of life's data. It comes down to really maybe these seven ultimate questions. Everybody's worldview is answering these seven questions. Here they are. Number one is the question of origin. How did everything that exists come to exist? How did everything that exists come to exist? Everybody's worldview is answering this question, the question of identity. What is humanity? Who are we? Are we good? Are we corruptible? Are we perfect? Are we perfectible? Right? They have to answer that question. Everybody's worldview is answering the question of meaning. What is the purpose of existence? Why am I here? Why am I alive? Why am I breathing? Everybody's worldview answers the question of morality. How should we live? What is right and wrong? How are we to treat one another? Everybody's worldview answers the question of destiny. What will become of us when we die? The question of deity. What is God? The question of truth, which may be the most important question is this. How do we know what truth is? Or how do we know our answers to the last six questions are really right? These are the questions that our worldview, when you boil it down, they have to answer. Everybody has a worldview and they must answer these questions. For example... If you were to go to someone, you ask them, hey, what is God? There's only a handful of answers they can give you, but they've got to have an opinion. They've got to have a thought. Maybe they could say, like, everything is God. You're God, and I'm God, and the stage is God, and boogers are God. And you're like, boogers are God? They're like, yes, boogers are God. Like, okay, you're a pantheist, right? You believe that everything is God. Maybe you ask someone, hey, what is God? And they say, there is no God. That's still a worldview. It's still a way of which they're viewing the world, that there is no God. There is no spiritual realm. There is no soul. And so they're an atheist. Or maybe you ask someone, hey, what is God? And they say, you know what? We cannot know if there's a God. Well, that's still a way of viewing everything. And so they're an agnostic. And so maybe you ask someone, what is God? And they say, you know what? I have no thoughts of God. I don't have a worldview. I would love for someone to, to say that to me, right? And because if they do, if they say it to you, here's what you're going to do, okay? You're going to kick them in the shin, you're going to take their keys, and you're going to steal their car. And this is going to be great for you. It's going to work out one of two ways. Number one, they'll admit they have a worldview. They'll admit they have a view about morality, what is right and what is wrong. Or if they truly don't have a worldview, you've got a free car, okay? So everybody has a worldview. You have to, you have to, the way we look, interpret it. And so everybody has a worldview. And they, why this is important is that worldviews matter. Ideas have consequences, right? I mean, I wrote here, 
your idea about God, your idea, your beliefs about the purpose of life, your eternal destiny, they have consequences. Your idea about the separation of church and state has consequences. Your idea and beliefs about the definition of a biblical marriage has consequences. Even Frederick Nietzsche, right, prominent atheist philosopher, he writes in his parable of a madman. We all know the phrase, the most famous phrase is that God is dead. He writes in this short essay. But the purpose of Nietzsche's parable of a madman is this. It was really a warning shot to all atheists. And what he says in his essay, in very uh, beautiful ways and terms, he says, hey, atheists, if you truly believe there is no God, there are some consequences that come with that assumption. And so what I'd love to do is to read some of the parable of the madman to you. Listen to what Nietzsche is putting forth about ideas having consequences. The madman jumped into their midst in a crowd of atheists, and he pierced them with their eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? And who gave us a sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward? In all directions, is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as though through an infinite nothing? Nietzsche is saying here, if we truly believe there is no God, then that means there also is no purpose to life. There is also no morality. There is no true north. There is no standard. And so he's kind of writing to his atheist community saying, you guys realize this, right? You, you say there's no God, but you still hold to these Christian moral principles. He goes, that's, that's ironic. That's crazy. If there is no God, there is no morality. Everything's just chance. Everything's just purposeless and meaningless. And so it's kind of a warning shot. Very interesting. Nietzsche understands that ideas have consequences. So if everybody has a worldview, the framework through which we interpret all of reality, if ideas matter, then it is of the utmost importance that we have on the right pair of glasses that we're looking through the correct lens. And so what I would submit to you is this, the worldview that best answers life's ultimate questions, the worldview that brings the most focus, the most clarity, the most precision, the worldview that is true and right is the biblical worldview. It's the Christian worldview. And we see this come out in some of the biblical authors. And so I want to read a couple of verses to you where I think the authors are talking about the difference between a biblical worldview and other worldviews. The first one comes in Colossians 2, 8, where the author writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He's kind of showing there. And even in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, the author writes, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, raised against the biblical worldview. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so I think the question we have to ask today is, what is a biblical worldview? And that's why Ron said, hey, I'd love for you to tell everybody how to have a biblical worldview. And I'm like, great, that's an easy task. Very simple, right? But notice I've said a biblical worldview and not the biblical worldview. We really don't use that definite article, the, because 
there is probably not one true biblical worldview, right? Maybe Jesus had the one true, right, biblical worldview, but actually there's probably multiple stances, multiple views you can have while still having a biblical worldview. Now, there are going to be some things that everybody has to agree on. You have to believe in the deity of Christ. If you don't believe Jesus is God, you do not have a biblical worldview on that subject matter. That's just kind of an essential foundational tenet, right? You have to believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is an essential component of a biblical worldview. But there are some issues where the Bible maybe isn't so precise or clear on that there is some leeway on what you believe, what you hold to, and still have a biblical worldview. Take, for example, the return of Christ. You probably need to believe that Jesus is coming back one day. That's probably pretty essential to a biblical worldview. But when is he coming back? Before the tribulation? At the end of the tribulation? In the middle of the tribulation? You can probably hold to all of those stances and still have a biblical worldview. Think about the mode of baptism, right? Should we immerse someone? Should we effuse someone? Should we sprinkle someone? Maybe that there's some leeway that you can hold to a biblical worldview and still believe in sprinkling or hold to a biblical worldview and believe in immersion. So it's hard to truly nail down what is a biblical worldview. I think there are some essentials to it, but there are some places where there's some, some openness to Scripture there. And so I think it was interesting as I was reading and researching, the Barna Group, they did a research to try and see how many Americans, how many people in the United States have a biblical worldview. So to do this survey, they had to come up with, well, what is a biblical worldview? Well, and here's what they put. They said, hey, we think a biblical worldview, kind of the essentials is this. I thought this was interesting. Right? They said a biblical worldview was defined as believing. Number one, that absolute moral truth exists. There is right and there is wrong. Number two, the Barna Research Group came up with, this is a biblical worldview, is that the Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles that it teaches. Number three was a biblical worldview is defined as believing Satan is considered to be real and not merely symbolic. Number four, a person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or do good works. Number five, Christ lived a sinless life life on earth. And number six, God is all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. And again, I'm not saying this is the one or the one I want you to hold to, but this is what Barna came up. They had to do this survey, and so here's the six that they put together. And they did a nationwide study in 2009 and said, all right, let's see how many people truly adhere to this, to have a biblical worldview according to our definition. Anybody want to take a guess at the percentage of the American population that says yes to all that? 9%. 9%, right? And then they did a little bit further. They kind of broke it out into different segments of the population. People age 18 to 24. What percentage of the population had a biblical worldview, according to Barna? Less than one half of a percent. Less than one half of a percent. And again, this is Barna's idea of what a biblical worldview is. But it immediately leads me to this question is this. How are we to have a biblical worldview? I mean, if it's less than 9% and from 18 to 24-year-olds, it's less than a half of a percent. How do we need to develop and have a biblical worldview? Do we have to go to seminary? 
and get all degreed up? Do we have to learn Greek and learn Hebrew? Do we need to memorize the Bible? Is this what it's going to take for all of us to have a biblical worldview? Maybe. Maybe that's the best way. But I don't know if that's ultimately practical or real for everyone in here. Say, hey, you need to enroll at DTS tomorrow, right? And good luck with your Greek and Hebrew. So I was wondering, is there a way that I could try to sum up for you and say, you know what, you can have a biblical worldview without having to memorize the entire Bible. Maybe something you can focus in on, concentrate on. And I took this precedent from Jesus, right? When he was asked, he said, hey, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, all the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. So I was like, well, if Jesus can sum it up, I might try to take a stab at it as well. Right, and so he sums it up. And so I was thinking, where is it in the Bible you could really focus and have a biblical worldview? In my conversations with Ron, he pointed me to the Sermon on the Mount. Ron said, that's, that's probably very succinct, you know, three power-packed chapters of what it means to have a biblical worldview. See, the Sermon on the Mount, it talks about your attitude, your perspective, anger, lust, marriage, truth-telling, enemies, generosity, prayer, pursuits, priorities, worry, judgment, relationships, salvation, salvific evidence, foundational principles, and the ultimate authority. That's a pretty good list. So if you walk out of here today and you're like, I want to have a biblical worldview, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and really immerse yourself in that and study that. It gives great practical advice. But I wanted to push it even further. And again, I may be too far out on a limb here, right? But I'm just trying to be helpful. I want to give you something tangible. Is there something even shorter than that? that you can use to determine biblical worldview. And I thought about it. It's like when I go to the fridge to know if the milk is spoiled or not, what do I do? Well, I don't pick it out and pour it into three separate test tubes and take it to UPS and send it off to three different labs and they kind of spin it around and they kind of analyze it for bacteria and viruses and they print three full reports and they email it back to me and I look at all of them and cross-reference them to determine, up. Oh, the milk is bad, right? We don't do that. What do we do? Yeah, <laughs> we give it a little sniff test, right? And that tells us pretty much everything we need to know about the milk, just from a sniff test. So I was wondering, is there a sniff test for a biblical worldview? Yeah, yeah maybe it's best that we memorize the whole Bible, but is there something we can just go, oh, that's a biblical worldview or not? Maybe. And here's what I'm going to put forward to you. I want to look in the book of Philippians. If you want to go there, turn with me. kind of make a case for what I believe may be a sniff test for a biblical worldview. I'm going to take a few select verses throughout. We'll start in 127, where it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So here I see the author's talking about, hey, there are you Christians and there are your opponents. What I read is competing biblical worldviews, or competing worldviews, okay? We move over to 3, 2. Look out for the dogs, for the evildoers, 
Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit of God, the Lord and Jesus Christ. Put no confidence in the flesh. So again, there's kind of these competing worldviews going on here about what people are putting confidence in. In 317, brothers, join me in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The church at Philippi was the very first church on the European continent. When you're the first of your kind anywhere, there's going to be some competing worldviews. And I think we see it here. He's writing and saying, hey, there's these people. They believe their God is their belly. They trust in the earth. They're opponents of you. So what does he tell them to do? He could give them a litany of things to do. Hey, you just need to you know, watch the Passion of the Christ a hundred times and you'll be able to, to do well in Philippi. You need to go memorize the Torah. Paul gives them a sniff test. Paul gives them a sniff test. Here's what he says. Towards the very end of the book, to the very end of the chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul gives them a sniff test. He says, hey, you want to know if it's a biblical worldview? Well, is it true? Does it line up with scripture? Is it commendable? Is it respectable? Is it pure? Is it chaste? Or is it sexually immoral? Is it lovely? Is it excellent? Is it praiseworthy? My thought, what I'd say to you here today is this. If you look at something and try to find, does this fit inside a biblical worldview? Go through this list. Check it off. If you answer yes to all of those, then maybe so. Maybe that's part of a biblical worldview. So maybe a verse we can memorize together is a sniff test for whether something is a biblical worldview. But I can't imagine in here today, Rock Point Church, Flower Mound, Texas, that that's the biggest issue in the room, right? I'm not sure that half of you are Marxist and half of you are New Age spiritualists and we have some secularist over here. And, you know, I think most of you, the reason you're here is probably because you do have a biblical worldview, the majority. And so I, I didn't just want to stop and say, all right, here's how I have a biblical worldview. And you're like, I kind of already have that. So what I wanted to do is push a little bit further and say, you know what? Maybe we have a biblical worldview, but maybe we need to have a better biblical worldview than we already do. And so what I wanted to look at were three common distortions that we make that happen. So maybe this is a great time to have your prescription checked, to have your lenses cleared. Three common distortions that go along with our own biblical worldview. The first one is this, the distortion of having a catchphrase biblical worldview. What I mean by that is sometimes we pull these cute, neat, nice sayings out, and we believe those over Scripture. And so, for example, one here is this, the devil made me do it, right? Where is that in Scripture, right? We don't see that. It's a great saying. It's cute. Sometimes we, we say it or whatever. But it's not true, 
And so that's a distortion of a biblical worldview. You are responsible for your own sin. I am responsible. I can't place that on to Satan. Maybe another one we say is this. When somebody passes away, oftentimes we'll hear, well, God takes the good ones home first. Really? What does that say about people who live to be really old? (laughs) You know? Or one time I heard this, God just needed another angel. Well, that's cute. That's heartwarming. But it's completely false. God created a finite number of angels. You and I do not become angels when we die and pass away. And so we have these cute little catchphrases that are distortions of a true biblical worldview. Here's another one. This is a pet peeve of mine. When we talk to students about how to be saved, say, so you know what you need to do? You just need to ask Jesus into your heart. I'm like, point to that in Scripture where it says that. We say we ask Jesus in our heart, right? It's nowhere there. And there's some major problems with this. Number one, Jesus is a grown man, okay? He's like a six foot two, 200 pound, you know, Israeli dude who has been bodily resurrected, okay? So he is full flesh and blood. You don't want him trying to climb into your heart, right? He will blow you up, right? You cannot have a grown man in your heart. And so it's just bad theology, but we use it because it's cute. And does that even save you? If someone were to pray and say, Jesus, come into my heart. Does that save them? No. There is no repentance. There's no confession of sin. There's no trusting in Christ as Savior. So we use this, and it's cute, but it's a distortion. It's a biblical distortion. Not only do we do that, but sometimes we'll take scriptures out of context, out of their genre, and we'll distort them as well. For example, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. The most famous phrase you'll hear at a prayer meeting, right? We love that. And I think it's so ambiguous, you know, which one is it? Is it two or is it three, you know? Do you bring three people but only let two in the room, and if God doesn't show up, then invite the third person in there? Or we'll say it when there's seven, you know, like, we're two or three together. It's like, what, there's seven here, so apparently he's not here. But you look at that. Read it in its context, Matthew 18. It has nothing to do with prayer. Nothing. It has everything to do with church discipline. When two or three go to confront a brother in sin, that's when God is with them. But yet we have a biblical distortion. We use these phrases, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's a proverb. It's wisdom literature. But yet we say, oh, no, 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 that's, that's true for all people in all times and all places. No, it's not. It's a proverb. I mean, you would never say to me, hey, the, the American proverb, early to bed, early to rise, makes one healthy, wealthy, and wise. You wouldn't say that that's true to all people in all times and all places. It's just an American proverb. So why are we so keen on taking biblical proverbs and manipulating them into biblical promises? What it does is it wreaks havoc on people's face it, faith because it will never live up to that. Jamie and I have had the, I may get emotional on this, the immense privilege of knowing this young woman who's gone through some heartache and tragedy in her life. Her brother had a terrible, terrible car accident, and he spent a long time in the hospital. And someone who had a biblical worldview distortion pulled this verse out of Psalms and gave it to her. They said this. They said, the Lord will protect him and preserve his life. Just believe this. Claim this over your brother, have faith in it, and everything's going to be all right. You know what happened to her brother? He died. 
And her faith almost died with him. Because she was told something out of context, in the wrong genre, cherry-picked, and just thrown out there. And so she writes me in an email. She says, how do I know what to believe? Is God true? Is he really for me? What scripture do I know? And see, the thing, the problem is sometimes we're biblically ignorant. We just don't know what we don't know. And so we use these catchphrases and we find these verses we think are cute. We take them out of context and it's a distortion and it can wreak havoc on people's faith. And so the solution, I think, is this. We need to get smarter about the Bible. We need to study a little harder. We need to dive a little deeper. We've got amazing classes down this hall that we can go be a part of. My in-laws, Brian and Edie Sanders, they're teaching a marriage of theology or a theology of marriage, right? If your reason against homosexuality is that God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, you need to go get in that class, right? That's not a good reason. That's a corny catchphrase Christianity. There's probably a distortion, right? But in that class, they're going to teach you. These are the roles of marriage. Is it ever okay to get a divorce? Is homosexuality really a sin? We need to know what the Bible truly says on those issues. So maybe we leave here today, and you know what? Maybe I've got a distorted biblical worldview because I've been using this catchphrase Christianity. And I need to go learn. I need to love God with all my mind and go get smarter about this. Romans 12, 2 tells us, not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. The second biblical distortion is this. It's a convenient or comfortable biblical worldview where we make Scripture say what we want it to say. You know, this all, I think, kind of comes from postmodernism, which denies a meta-narrative, denies this overarching story. They're skeptical of truth claims. And so they say, hey, there, there is no truth, which is a self-defeating statement because you go, well, is that statement true, right? But they say, well, we can't know the truth. And then you ask them, well, how do we know if that's true, you know? So it's kind of crazy, but they still hold on to this. When they look at the Bible, a lot of postmodern, postmodernists believe that what they have this kind of idea of deconstructionism. That we have to, the, the biblical authors were not writing objective truths. They were writing from their subjective experiences. And so we have to kind of take and break down and deconstruct the Bible, and then we bring our own meaning towards it. The postmodernists would say, the words on the page don't have meaning until I give them meaning. And we've seen this come into our churches, right? I've talked to my seniors about this here at church. We have a Wednesday night Bible study, but I told them, you know the worst question, the worst question you can ask in a Bible study is to read a passage of Scripture and go, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? It doesn't matter what it means to you, right? It matters what it meant to the original author, to the original audience. Your meaning doesn't matter. And someone's just saying, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? We go, hey, why did Paul write this? Why did Jesus say this? What's the context? What's going on, right? And so we let that come in. The best and worst thing that ever happened to the Bible is the mass production of it. I mean, it's incredible that ever, I've got 17 Bibles at home, right? Anyone in the world who wants a Bible can almost have one, right? It's everywhere. That is incredible. One of the worst things is the mass production because now we don't read the Bible in community. There's this thing called this alone time with God where we just kind of sit, we take scripture all by ourselves, and we kind of give it our own meaning. 
you know, back in these days when it was written, what they would do is they'd sit around, they'd read it, and it's in community. And someone would go, oh, I think it means this. And they go, shut up. That doesn't mean that, you know. And so there's someone there to correct them. But now we can just go kind of sit in our room and be like, I think it means this. No one's going to correct. Okay, let's go with that, right? So we've got to be careful about that. This, it, it, all truth is relative, and it means something different to you than it means to me. So the problem here is that we're biblically relative or subjective. The solution, I believe, is to love God with all of our heart. If we have been twisting scripture to make it say what we want it to say, I think we just need to ask for forgiveness, to humble ourselves, to confess. Because sometimes scripture's not going to say what you want it to say. And that's okay. Scripture's not about us and our comfort. It's about us and our conformity to the image of Christ. That's what it's about. Last one is this. Well, 2 Timothy 2.15 says this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The last biblical distortion I want to touch on is a, what I call a closed off or a cold biblical worldview. It's a worldview that doesn't have any world impact. You know what to do, but you just don't do it. It's a biblical distortion. We don't forgive, we don't tithe, we don't honor our parents, we don't tell the truth, we don't choose to be sexually pure, we don't serve, we don't honor God in our speech and our thoughts and our actions, and we don't spiritually lead our family. You know what to do. I know what to do. But so many times it's just head knowledge for me, and it doesn't affect my hands and my heart, right? So the problem, we're biblically passive, we're biblically inactive. So a solution is to be bold, courageous, to love God with all of our strength. 2 Peter 1, 5, 8, love this verse. Verses, for these very reasons, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what? So what if we have a biblical worldview? So what if our lens is distorted? That's kind of what I want to end on, what I want to leave you with. And rather than me just coming up with why I think it matters, why I think you should really look at your biblical worldview and see if you need to have a better biblical worldview, I went to our seniors a couple Wednesdays ago in Tracy Herb's home, and I asked them, I said, so what if I don't have a biblical worldview? What does a biblical worldview even matter? And here's what they said. Number one, they said, having a biblical worldview gives you a standard of right and wrong. It's not just your feelings or emotions that dictate what you do. Another senior said this, there's so much coming at us. New thoughts, new technologies, new temptations. A biblical worldview gives me the ability to process and to filter all that new information. Another senior said this, Without a biblical worldview, we're not anchored. We'll drift away from God. It reminded me of Ephesians 4.14. No longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Do we have an anchor? Or, or does the talking head on CNN, the article we read on Twitter, and what our friends say, and what our family, is it we're just going to back and forth? Do we have a biblical worldview that anchors us, that roots us to the truth? Another senior said this. Man, this is beautiful. 
I am where I am. And I am who I am because of my biblical worldview. The places I go and don't go, the people I date and don't date, the decisions I make and don't make are all a result of my biblical worldview. And finally, one last senior, they said this. A girl, she said, I've always idolized the bad girls. I've always wanted to be one of them. But my biblical worldview gives me a better role model to follow. How incredible. Our seniors, 18-year-olds in high school, are saying this. So the question today isn't, do you have a biblical or do you have a worldview? Everybody's got a worldview. The question is, how biblical is your worldview? And how can we make it better? I want to end with a quote by C.S. Lewis, then I'll pray and we'll worship. Quote by C.S. Lewis, I think it just fits so well talking about biblical worldview. It says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And the prayer I'm going to use to close today is a prayer by Richard of Chichester, written a long, long time ago. But I think it's fitting in regards to our biblical worldview. If you'll pray with me. Thanks be to thee, my Lord Jesus Christ, for all the benefits thou hast given me, for all the pain and insult thou hast borne for me. O most merciful Redeemer, friend and brother, may I see thee more clearly, may I love thee more dearly, and may I follow thee more nearly. God, thank you so much for this day, this message. God, thank you for Christ and the scriptures and everything you've given us that we can have a true biblical worldview. Lord, without you, we're wearing these glasses that are distorted, that are fogged up, and we cannot see true reality. So God, whatever it is we need to do to bring more focus, to bring more clarity, more precision to our life, help us to be bold and brave and to do that today. Help us to see you, and by seeing you, see everything else more clearly. In your name we pray.